Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we are so excited uh, to be joined by yet another brilliant special guest who is the host of Fake the Nation podcast, Nagin Farsad, who also has so many other accolades that I'm going to allow Waj the good, good honors of introducing all of your other work, because like a child of immigrants, like all of us, we have multiple jobs. So Nagin is also an actress. She's also a filmmaker. She co-directed the movie, the documentary that everyone should watch if you can find The Muslims Are Coming with her friend Dean Obeidullah. She has a movie called Third Street Blackout, which is available on Peacock. And she's also the author of a book, which uh, I thought it was hilarious and informative. You, you guys can pick it up called uh, How to Make White People Laugh. And Nagin, 12 years ago, auditioned for my play, The Domestic Crusaders in New York, <laughs> which she completely has forgotten about. But I remembered her because I'm like, this woman has such cool glasses. Uh, and she gave a very spirited audition and she was nice. And then she still talks to me, even though she didn't get the, the role. So thank you, Nagin. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And I, what is it? Is it? Am I just still searching for your approval? Is that what I want? Although these many years later is Wajat's pr- approval in life. I think that's maybe what this is. Subconsciously. If I come on the podcast, am- maybe, maybe this time. <laughs> Oh, it's so good Um, to see you guys. Love the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything you're doing. And also, you're going to be our resident expert on all things Iran. And we have appointed you with the power vested in us as the the ambassador of all Iranian people. So no pressure. Okay, accepted. Um, Burden accepted. Um, so where should we begin? Let's start at the beginning where I think that most of our problems, uh, are directly stem from, which is white people in America. Um, so here's the thing. We just finished midterm elections and once again, surprise, surprise, white women, uh, have once again, voted for their own oppression, Nagin. And Mm -hmm. for some reason, this seems to be the pattern of behavior that they've had for decades, right? So long as they are the standby, their white man, um, 
type of gals, right? And we're trying to understand if bodily autonomy is not going to be the issue that gets you to detach yourself from white male patriarchy, what is it going to take? And and before you answer, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I, the reason why Nagin is so good uh, at, at answering this, because she's actually, you know, the, 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 the intro that we gave, like she went with Dean to like these mega states. And you're like, she straight up talked to these folks. She goes, hey, here's an Arab. I'm an Iranian. We're Muslims. And like, they straight up said things to their faces that like are deeply offensive. And they tried to win them over. In her book that I recommend you all read, she said, you know, how to make white people laugh. So she has engaged this through her work, through her politics, through her humor. So it's not just her opinion, but she's actually went to the whites, some of the friendly whites, the moderate whites, which are my favorite whites, and some of the scary whites to try to find out, hey, how can I win you all over? Yes. And I have to say, I, you know, one of the things that I learned in that process, and honestly, like I, one of the things that I, when I started working with my like current set of agents, I was just like, hey, can you guys book me in red states? I want to be booked in as many red states as possible. And they were like, um, oh, okay. And so like they, I've been, I performed in South Dakota. I performed in Wyoming, literally like the tree, the week Trump was elected, uh, like two or three days later, I, I performed in South Carolina. Um, so I like, I not only like think it's, um, performing anywhere is fun and awesome. But I also think like, why do these kind of modes of entertainment bypass some of these states? And, um, and they shouldn't, I mean, that's, I mean, part of the kind of like problem of the cultural bifurcation of America. Um, and so, uh, so I do like kind of view it as my job to like go to these people and engage with them. And one of the things I learned in that process is like the scary ones are very few, very, very, very few in number. Um, and they're probably like, you know, they're too far gone, just like the scary, I don't know, left-wing ones are like you, the, the ones that are the fringe of any direction are too far gone in that direction. Um, oddly, the, two, the fringes on the on both directions meet together and like uh, touch like hands, <laughs> oddly. Um, so, you they, know, you'll they see. get the Glenn Greenwalds uh, and the rest who come together. Right, right. Yeah. Now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's like that weird thing happens. But um, I would say, you know, what, when I've been on the road, there's one thing that I I think that I do, which is I give um, like white people the benefit of the doubt. And um, one thing that I've noticed with the questions that I get on the road is that they're questions born out of um, ignorance of a situation and not out of malice. And so, um, for example, uh, had mentioned my movie, the Muslims are coming. And one of the questions that I remember we got a lot during the making of that movie. Um, and what that also made it into the movie is, is, is people asking, what do you think of nine 11? And it's a, you know, if like, if this was Twitter, then everyone would just respond with rage and like, how could you ask that question? You're a monster, whatever. But because I was in like, you know, in, in hometown locations, I was in, you know, um, taco shops and in, um, vintage, this was a, the, what, the one in the movie, it's like in a vintage, like antique kind of shop, clothes and tchotchkes and whatever. Um, it was, you know, we could actually have a conversation. I didn't, my, my re- reaction to her wasn't about rage and my reaction to most 
questions like this isn't about rage and you're getting immediately angry. I mean, I've always felt that that doesn't like help ever. Um, and so my, you know, and the reason she had that question is because, and I can't remember where we were, maybe we were in like Tupelo, Mississippi or something like that. And the reason she had that question is because the news she gets is off of Fox News and then the mm. people that she goes to church with then also get their news off of Fox News and then her family who also gets their, maybe they branch out and do conservative talk radio. Like they're saturated with messages of like Muslims were into 9-11 or whatever, like distrust American Muslims. And then she meets an American Muslim in her little store. Um, I, I think I bought a hat. Uh, and she asked the question, what do you think of 9-11? Because that's what she's been sort of taught to, to wonder, to think she, she's been taught by all of the media that surrounds her that Muslims may be pro 9-11. And so I feel deeply for her that she wouldn't actually have asked that question if she had access to other types of media, um, and, and people with differing opinions. And that's, I think the you know, blame the media. That's kind of like where where I land on these things, because then the second you sort of befriend them and chat with them and you give it like that 20 to 30 minutes of like a delightful encounter. Uh, I I honestly think that she's going to think twice about asking, you know, thinking that Muslims love 9-11. And, and, and the fact that like I was then the Muslim, the probably first one she had ever met who became the representative of all Muslims. By the way, I'm fine with that. Um, and uh, and I, I think, you know, I think those encounters make a difference. Um, the problem is we in America don't do very much encountering of each other. And that I think is a, is a really big problem. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions. Questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. So the, the, I, I kind of have your disposition. To, you know, I did the same thing after uh, Trump was elected. I told my speaking agency, me, agency to send me to the Rust Belt. 
where I went, the Pennsylvania and Ohio, where the real Americans drink real coffee and real diners and have real problems and real economic anxiety. And I met a lot of those folks. And a lot of those folks, as we know, like, look, we're talking about white supremacy here, right? Not all whites are the same. We know this. And a lot of those folks are like, we didn't vote for Trump. And we can't believe so many of our neighbors did. Trump gets elected. Now you fast forward seven years. Trump's vulgarity is on full display. His mm-hmm. misogyny, his anti-Semitism, his homophobia, the people he surrounds himself with, the people who glom onto him, the Elon Musk, the Stephen Millers, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. There was a violent insurrection. Now, right-wing media that you have described, and, and yes, the data shows that, that that right-wing media ecosystem has radicalized about a third of Americans who don't have horns on their head. They don't know any better, but yet they still see with their own eyes and they say, you know what, I'm going to go to church and I'm still going to vote for the vulgarian. I'm going to vote for the person who's in the, in the group that is going to take away abortion rights. I'm going to go vote for the group that says we're all groomers and sexual deviants. And so there comes a point where even me, where I say, okay, how much do we engage with white folks and these white women in particular? Like how much more do they need to see? Because they still saw Trump. And then you know what happened in 2020? More white women voted for Trump. In, in, in the midterms with Glenn Youngkin right here in Virginia, they doubled down and voted for Youngkin. And right now in 2022, after literally the right-wing hacks in the Supreme Court took away a 50-year constitutionally protected right, even though that did motivate some white women, especially in the Rust Belt states, the data shows still a majority of white women said, we're going to go for these guys who want to make us into handmaidens. So when is the appropriate time for rage? And when is the appropriate time to say, and this is a question that I ask myself, right? I cannot engage with you. I have to work around you and I have to build my multicultural cultural coalition of the willing because I can't wait for you to finally acknowledge me as a human being. Are we at that moment? Oh, I mean, I don't, you know, I think... Like, I guess for me, I I never think it's a great time for rage. I just don't find that it's been, you know, because we've been doing rage like pretty much constantly since like 2015, even before that. I mean, and and we had this, we started the seedlings of rage, like I guess with Newt Gingrich and then the internet just exacerbated a thousandfold. Um, and I just not sure, like we've tried it and I just don't feel like it's done anything. You know what I mean? Except for make everybody angry. Um, and so I'm not sure like rage is ever the response. Um, but I also don't think that those things are mutually exclusive. Like I think you can engage with people and, and keep trying to convince them and build your coalition at the same time. You know what I mean? Uh, I think the other thing is like, the coalition that's being built should be really fun. You know what I mean? Like, it shouldn't be like, this election, it's the end of the world. Like, every election is, if it, if we treat every election like an existential crisis, like, I don't know that that's going to create the kind of enthusiasm we need for people to come into the fold. Like, there, it's like not fun, you know what I mean? To like that everything is the end of the world. And so I think that's another thing I would say in building a coalition is like, can we, I was listening to like um, a podcast about Australians and how they vote and they literally like they have election day barbecues. Um, they have, obviously they have election day is a, is a national holiday, which is awesome. 
Um, here in America, we make it as hard as possible for people Correct. to vote. Right. And, but that said, we it's it's easier and easier and easier with every passing year with all with, you know, the, I don't know how many weeks of early voting there is in the state of New York. We didn't even have that um, until the, until the last couple of elections. Um, you know, so many states have jumped on board with early voting. It's becoming easier and easier and easier, um, which is a win. Of course, like. Democrats can't handle a win. We can't handle anything good happening. <laughs> like we refuse to be happy about anything. I remember like after Kansas being like, I'm happy. And then immediately everybody was like, don't be happy. Like This is not and like, no, but like Kansas did the right thing. Like Kentucky, you know what I mean? I don't That's know. Right. I, it's, it's, it's okay for us to also recognize some of these wins and to be like happy that there are people and look, look, you're not going to, there's some people for which abortion is a done deal, right? It is an issue. It's, it, it's a matter of their faith for them. So you really can't expect them to change their minds on that. Bodily autonomy means nothing in the face of their, the Christian ideals with respect to abortion. And like, I just have to like, let those people go. Like, I'm not, I just happen to know in my heart and ending statistically that there are more of other people that don't vote with that one particular, you know, Christian impetus on abortion, um, which, by the way, is a particular reading of Christianity, not to say that all Christians uh, feel that way about abortion. Um, yeah. Did I answer any question at all so far? <laughs> so sure so far, I so far, I, I think that we're I think we're we're doing well. I mean, I I guess I will push back because my on on the rage point, because otherwise I wouldn't have any shows um, <laughs> if I did. Like, like, if let, I me did let me both sides yeah, rage. Let me. Yeah. So I think that at times when you see. An escalation in political violence, whether we're talking about Paul Pelosi, um, the attempted murder on Paul Pelosi, because I don't know what else you would call somebody taking a hammer to somebody else's head. Um, when we're looking at, you know, the most recent mass shooting in Colorado Springs at an LGBTQ nightclub, when, you know, we're talking about uh, abortion being overturned after 50 years, like, I don't know how to not embody a sense of rage. I don't know how to say that there is common ground when you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert that are stoking political violence, that are saying things like Democrats want you dead. Like, I don't know what the what the right response should be, because I don't think that us as Democrats continuing to try and reach across the aisle to people that are holding assault rifles on the other side makes sense. So I'm just curious if you don't think that rage is something that is sustainable, but if we don't articulate how dangerous the times are and how consequential each election has become, because with an authoritarian regime, we're not going to get multiple bites at this apple. How do you think that we should convey the seriousness of the political moment that we're in? Yeah, I mean, like, that's a great question. And obviously, like, I feel like I'm, I'm going to get a lot of messages, but like, I don't think that people's anger is unjustified or anything like that. I don't think it's 
crazy to feel angry about these things, which I do. Like I am, I'm like very, you know, as things go, I'm a, I'm a progressive Democrat, like cats out of the bag. Like that's where I'm at politically. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it, but it is for me a matter of approach. I think, um, you know, uh, what was I going to say? It was about, um, oh, you know, you mentioned like Bulbert and um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and those people. I mean, another thing that happened that we saw in the midterms was that a lot of the races for secretary of state and a lot of the just election deniers in general um, in those battleground states were all lost. I mean, they lost handily in most cases. It's just not a very popular opinion. I think there's also something that's going on. Um, and again, this I just feel a frisson of people getting real tired with election denialism. And I feel it yeah. just a little like a pinch and there's just a little something in the air of people feeling like this level of constant agitation that Republicans are at is really annoying and it's boring, like bring some, bring something else to the table, you know, because I'm not voting for this. And we saw that time and time again with a lot of these elections, especially the secretary. I, I'm, you know, I talked a lot on on Fake the Nation about the Secretary of State elections. I was very concerned about those and was very happy to see the results. Right, like we have a lot of people who just, at a minimum, believe in maintaining democratic institutions. You know, running running state elections. You know, so that's fantastic. Um, Yes. So that so what we no no I, I I think this is a fascinating conversation because my disposition <laughs> leans just in internally like you Nagin just just my personality right mm -hmm. because for me I know that if I operate from that spiritually it's unhealthy for me at the same <laughs> yes. time though at the same time though I also know and this has been an interesting uh, you know we all learn right so talking to folks I can't also blame them for their anger and their rage based on what they're, especially black women, right? Because black women in particular have told me like we've been taught our whole life to police our rage. Mm -hmm. And then also brown men and black men. They, like if we, <laughs> there's a reason why Obama never lost his temper, even though they yep. asked this man to friggin' show his birth certificate. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, the second I showed, it wasn't even anger. I remember I wrote this article for Daily Beast and we've talked about this on this podcast before where my Daily Beast editor, came up with this like catchy title. It wasn't even my title. Like you Karens are killing us after the, the Yunkin uh -huh, victory, uh, -huh. uh where it was like, such a manufactured BS, uh, racist, homophobic trope, uh, the Southern strategy that just roped enough white women and suburban women. And lo and behold, fast forward two years, we're seeing stochastic terrorism where the targets of right-wing media are being killed. Like Paul Pelosi almost died. Election workers are being intimidated. Educators. Yep. Uh, yep. the, the, the gay club in Colorado where five people were killed. Right. And so for me, there is this tension that I have where my disposition, I think all three of us were like, we, we don't want to replace any of you either a invite us to your party or let it just have our own potluck. Don't kill us. Uh, and if you are trying to kill us, then don't be surprised if we don't invite you to our party. We're trying to build a multicultural coalition of the willing. And a part of me says, okay, where do I draw the line in the sense that my hand has always been reaching out to you? Like always, mm -hmm. my whole life. Because yep. when you grow up as the outsider, we can't afford mm -hmm. to like not engage. We just can't, yeah, right? Of course. Uh, and then it, we just don't have the power. Um, and then the part of me then comes now, we're like, all right, the caravan has to move forward. Who's going to be on that caravan? 
Like how much work will well, I do to convince that, what's Karen? What's the alternative? I don't, I don't understand. Well, that's, I well, guess like just this. like nuts and bolts. What does that mean? Well, and, well, it's like, yeah, it's like ahead. Tony Morrison, right? I'll, I'll finish. It's like when Tony Morrison and I'm going to paraphrase or say, like the function of racism ultimately is to exhaust you because you have to spend your whole life and distraction. You have to spend your whole life proving yourself to kind of like a nameless judge during executioner. What, 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 even with these Rust Belt stuff, right? Nagin, that they'll, they'll say this sometimes. Nagin, you're the good one. Danielle, mm-hmm. you're the one, you're the good black. Right. Obama's, why can't they all be like Obama? And so, I, I mean, I don't have an answer to this. It's about strategies, right? And everyone has a different strategy. And my take here is, well, when do we decide to say enough's enough? I'm going to move beyond the Karen and get enough Karens that I can. Because I did even a tweet like a couple of weeks ago where I asked white women and a lot of the white women who voted in the midterms for Democrats is what they told me on my Twitter went like quite kind of viral. They said, we've tried. We cannot win them over. We cannot win over our fellow white women. So then I asked myself, okay, so then what do we, is our job again to always have our hand out? Maybe that's the spiritual response to always have our hand out. Or do Mm -hmm. we just say peace, good luck, enjoy meatloaf and potato salad with raisins, and we're going to move on. Okay, so yeah, so you're saying is the idea just to like build the coalition and not think about white people at all? No, no, not at all, because we need enough whites. We need need enough white people, just statistically. You need to always increase the pie. Yeah. But statistically, it seems that we need about 45 to 47%. And right now, it seems that if we get that, it's enough. It seems that we ain't going to get 60 to 65. Okay. Yeah. So, and if, and can we win with 45 to 47? If, if a majority of black folks, 85 to 90% of black folks, 70 plus percent of Jews, 65, 70% of Muslims, 65, 70% of Asians, and about 60 to 65% of Latinos. Yes. Right. So I guess then the other question is how, you know, we a big another story. And again, I, I I haven't looked at the numbers to see how real this is or if it was just like media talking points, like the loss of Latino black and Latino voters. Like what is there something there that we're like this? We're not being like a fun enough party to keep the to keep those people at the party party in all senses. No. Um, you know what I mean? Like that if you know, if we, if we, if we're like, okay, we're not going to try and convert any more, you know, white women, but like, we can't afford any more losses on like black and Latino voters. The other funny, this is the other funny thing I think. And I don't know if you feel this way, watch, but like, I've always been like, I'm nothing if not in a coalition because there's like five Iranians in America. You know what I mean? Like there's so it's you, Jabrani. Yeah, and, and uh, you can't and even it, think of the third yeah. one. Um, Christian Amanpour. Um, but like it's literally there's so few. We're we're exactly nothing. I mean, that's why I have a master's degree in African American studies, because I was like, I need to glom onto the nearest um um minority group so that I have like a the thing I can learn about minorityness, you know what I mean? And uh and that so that's my feeling is um uh, as an Iranian, I'm all I always think in building building these groups because there's never been uh, there's no political leverage. Nobody cares about losing the Iranian vote. Right. So. Um, well, they so better, you, in LA, if, especially in L.A., they better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's some regions. Right. There's a couple of reg- great neck Long Island. What up? Um, but I think like. If you are so if you're in a really underrepresented ethnic minority, then. 
Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. You you have to think about these like larger numbers. And if you're black and Latino, you actually have some more political power. Um, but I'll, but if I lump myself into Middle Easterners, if I lump, my, lump, lump myself into the larger Asian umbrella, um, the larger middle, you know, Muslim umbrella, then there's a little bit more heft there. Um, but can we do are you guys at all concerned about losing people that we've historically come to trust as democrats um you know i think that what the republicans do is a really good job on peeling off just one or two percent of each group right because they're not actually looking to increase the size of their party particularly with people who are black indigenous or people of color or queer people um or more women they're just looking to peel off um a bit and frankly as it pertains to latino men and black men i think the media does a really good job of making much to do about nothing in order to add to the hype um around you know this this possible mass exodus to uh the republican party when arguably 85 to 90% of each of those aforementioned groups vote Democratic, right? But it's a really good hot button talking point for mainstream media to say, oh my God, Latinx, you know, Latinx men and black men are going to the Republican Party, not in any real credible number. And I think that to Waj's point, if we were as a Democratic establishment, we, if we were to do a better job at looking after every single other demographic rather than chasing white women who have never voted with Democrats since, I don't know, ever, um, then maybe we would do a better job and we wouldn't be so concerned with the Republican peel off because who is our base and who we're going after would be really clear. But Waj, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I like this conversation because there isn't really a the answer, because it reflects the diversity of opinions and strategies that are necessary to build the coalition, right? And I think that everyone has their own unique personality. I've heard both. Uh, and I think you need both. And, and you have to center people's emotions and experiences of where they are. Like you can't tell people, hey, don't be angry, even as boots are being stepped on your neck. But at the same time, if everyone's angry and depressed, you're right, Nagin, the youth is like, I want to have joy. 
And if we're screwed yeah. all the time, then why should I join this coalition? I saw my mom burned out. I saw my dad burned out. F this, I'm going to tap out. Uh, and so there has to be a balance where you have joy, but also deep vigilance and concern where that anger, I think it's transformed into love and empathy and at the same time with love and empathy at, at, at the same time you're like okay well i also have to love myself and i can't expose myself to such toxicity and exhausting racism and i feel like with white women look even though i said what i said just knowing my personality my hand is always outreached like always is like that's just how i am right, so right, right, even right. Take you can't help cheney. yourself yeah yeah i can't help myself i'll even take a liz cheney the bar oh, is so yeah. low that if a Liz Cheney who <laughs> votes with Trump 90% of the time is willing to freaking at least say, you know what, a violent insurrection incited by Donald Trump and his MAGA mob is a step too far and I'm going to hold these people accountable. I'm like, for this, come on down, Liz Cheney. My mom will make biryani. Maybe I can influence <laughs> you somehow and like your horrible other track record. Mm-hmm. But, but on, on this, you know, I, I want to ask you about this because I think we have to talk about this. Uh, there was the, the FIFA Cup was happening and the Iranian team to, to kick off a FIFA, Iran played England. Ooh, tough match. Uh, England, for those, spoiler alert, England won. But there was this <laughs> wonderful moment of solidarity where the English team, the stadium, and the Iranian team stood up for Iranian women. And the women of Iran, just like women everywhere, have really kind of galvanized this latest round of protests against Iranian men and the clerics who want Handmaid's Tale uh, in Iran. And for those who don't know, Margaret Atwood, when she wrote Handmaid's Tale, she was inspired by white Christian evangelicals in America and the, uh, the, the, the clerics in Iran, for those who don't know. And so and when we're talking about women who vote against their own interests, we see still enough of these Americans, <laughs> we see these white evangelical Christians who vote for Trump, say we should support Iranian women. And so as the ambassador of all Iranian women and Iran, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, your response to these folks who are supporting Iranian women and at the same time supporting Trump and white evangelical Christianity in America. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because on one hand, I am like, you know, the the rights that we have are just like a, a they're a delicate web and they need to be like tended to. I'm going to mix a bunch of metaphors. Um, there's a, there are like a very delicate flower that needs to be tended to. You know, we can't just assume we have rights because if we don't, then we do like then things do descend into what ha- happened in the Islamic Republic to women. Um, mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I can see that I the idea that that could ever happen seems so crazy and so abstract, right? Mm. Be, you know, and and it is, and I think part of the reason. And I've been able to be so kind of enthusiastic about America um, is uh, and still so hopeful and still so optimistic is that like I um, grew up like summering in Iran, um, the hands of the Middle East. And we, you know, I used to go every summer and um, I had a wonderful time. Um, and, and I mean, here's the thing, like what you don't understand about about life in Iran is that people still have wonderful full lives. Like there's so many nuances that are so hard to kind of like talk about. Um, but one of them is that like people in Iran have been, you know, women have been like have the highest rate of degree attainment anywhere in the Middle East. Um, they're an extremely literate, like highly educated uh, citizenry. Um, you know, this is not. Um, you know, these are not like 
poor people without skills. Like this is not that kind of, it's a resource rich country with a highly skilled citizenry who also happens to be an Islamic Republic that's utterly repressive. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's wild. Um, and the, and the only reason that a revolution hasn't happened, you know, been successful so far is because of, you know, weapons, uh, killing, killing people, you know, that, that will, uh, will will quelch any revolution. Um I think Amer I think oftentimes, you know, I I I feel so optimistic about America because I've seen what happens in Iran and we really don't as Americans do not know what it's like to live in those repressive circumstances. Like I was stopped by morality police. Everyone in my family has had been detained or been stopped by morality mm. police. You know what I mean? That's like, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like when the AK-47 is walking towards you and you're and they're stopping you because you're wearing fashionable sunglasses or you're whistling or whatever, right? Like I was a young girl uh, who had to newly wear my hijab getting stopped with these things. And it was terrifying. And I remember thinking like, well, I'm just going to go back to my, my, my high school and put on my shorts. And it, this is a novelty experience for me that I get to go home to my American friends and tell them how crazy it is in Iran, but I don't have to live this, you know, but there are people that have to live it every day. And my, my cousins, my, you know, my hundreds of family members have to live it every day. Um, but so I, having seen what it's like to live like that, I feel like we don't know. We, we, we complain a lot. This is not Handmaid's Tale in America. We're not remotely there when you are unable to wear lipstick on your lips and walk on the street. Um, talk to me because, you know, we're just so, so I understand like people liked it. So that's why I think Republican, you know, white women will, will say, will support Iranian women because it seems so utterly far away from what we have. And it is so utterly far away from what we have. That said, <laughs> then I'm going to immediately contradict myself and go back to the metaphor of like, it's a very delicate flower, the rights we have, and we need to constantly work on protecting them. So like though, both of those things are true, you know? Hmm. Nikki, uh, last ish question, uh, for, for you last ish, I like last, that. last ish, uh, question, uh, for you is this though, given, given the balance that we try and have in the United States, I think in terms of recognizing when revolutions like what is happening in Iran need to be supported, but making the very clear distinction that the oppressions that we are experiencing in the United States are not the same. But what are what are the lessons, would you say, that we should be taking away um, from what the women of Iran are doing from the, mm -hmm. the courage and the bravery that they yeah. have, because they are literally putting their lives on the line. They're not going to, you know, Washington DC with their pussy hats on and then going back home to their, you know, to their, to their regular lives. Like there are real consequences like losing their lives that they, they are up against. So what is it that you feel we should be taking from that risk? And and many have yeah, died I mean, I, and have been imprisoned, and we haven't heard about it. Uh, I mean, we will. I mean, I don't know when we'll know the real numbers of how many have died. Um, but I mean, I think that's a great question. I actually wrote about this in a piece um, in a far magazine, and you know, and the question I asked is like, did you have to? You know, 
uh, and right now they're really targeting minors, right? So like 14, 15, 60 year old, they're really targeting high school students mm. because um, high school students and college students tend to be in very many cases, the backbones of these revolutions. And really like ask yourself, like, did I have to um, carry on my back a regime change when I was 15? You know what I mean? That's what the mm. people in Iran are doing. That's what these students are doing. They're literally the, led by women, bolstered by extremely young protesters. Um, they are trying to uh, create a revolution. And um, and we didn't we we bitch and moan about the 15 minutes it takes to go vote. <laughs> yeah. Like we act like that's crazy. Like we can't ask people for to, to do too much. Like, you know, and and we have these like 15 year olds that are literally losing their lives mm. because mm. they want to save their country. And I, the other thing is here, I, I I don't know if you guys have heard people say this, but I have some uh, uh, some wealthy friends that will just be like, well, you know, this might have to just be the time when we go buy that, that home in uh, Portugal. You know, and like it, no, we've talked about you, hold on, <laughs> like you, you can't nothing, by the way, in the Trump administration has like materially changed the life of a rich person, which should we focus yep. more on class? I don't know. Another question. But nothing has materially changed the life of a very wealthy person. And they're the ones talking about going and living in Portugal. And I'm like, OK, well, do 300 million of us all go and live in Portugal or do we just save this part, the one, the thing we're in, you know, and make it more Portugalish or whatever you want, you know, like the, it's 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 crazy to me that we have millions of people in Iran fighting for their country fighting for the women there. Um, and we, we, and I, and I talk to people that are always talking about buying homes in Spain and like, I, it makes me lose my mind because the, we're asking for the bare minimum here, which is for people to be engaged, just like be mm. engaged, yeah. vote, you know? And the other thing that I, I think that, that I, that I take away from this is I think a lot of us have grown to think as of politics as this thing that's happening on a national level. And we need to like turn on like a national cable news. We need to see what's trending nationally, right? We need to understand what's happening nationally, but that's not actually politics. And politics is like what's happening in your neighborhood. And like, what are you doing in your neighborhood? And I, you know, I, I'm one of the, the founding members of my local friends of, um, this particular park in my neighborhood, we formed a friends of group because the park is falling into disrepair. Budget cuts have meant that's a lot, that a lot of aspects of the park are not being taken care of. And so people have to come in and fill the gaps, right? So politics isn't just like, what, who are you voting for and phone banking for in a state you've never been in, but literally what are you doing to better improve the lives of the people around you? Um, and that, that's the other like kind of the thing I take away from from all of this is, um, you know, like fight for the places that you live. Yeah, no, that's that's a, it's a wonderful way to end. And also when it, when we're looking at Iran, I think being a Muslim man and oftentimes I think black and brown folks who are listening, uh, what's what's also important is they don't see us as a monolith. They see us as a diverse group of passionate contradictory people some women are progressive and wear chowder some women wear makeup and are very conservative it doesn't matter you see the whole diverse society come out and you're seeing men stand with women for these rights and freedoms and i hope that that's inspiring for men here to do the right thing and hopefully 
hopefully avoid the oppression that many of our uh, parents and our ancestors have unfortunately faced and came to America, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, to avoid. Uh, but inshallah, hopefully we do what we can to make this country the best version of itself, even though we have to tolerate from time to time some of the bad Karens. Not all Karens are bad. We're just talking about some of the bad Karens. Uh, thank you, Nagin, for joining us. The podcast is Face the Nation with Nagin Farsad. Fake the she, Nation. Fake the Nation. She is the uh, <laughs> co-director and filmmaker of The Muslims Are Coming, or her movie. Uh, what's the Peacock movie one more time? Third Street Blackout. Third Street Blackout and the book How to Make White People Laugh is available on Amazon. Follow her also. Are you still on Twitter, by the way? Did you tap out? I am. I don't. I haven't done anything. I don't know what to do. I'm just st- standing by. Is that what we're all doing? Standing by is fine. Yes, What's the Twitter basically. handle? Okay. <laughs> it's Nagin Farsad on all of the things. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajah And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.